Now, I want to start by asking a question. How do you acquire an identity? And I want to think about specifically one identity that I suppose a lot of us are familiar with, which is American identity. We had the joy of living in the United States for four years, and those are my children uh, after they'd been there about a year. They just came out with this Pledge of Allegiance. We didn't even know that they knew it. They were pledging allegiance to the flag. How does someone come to think of themselves as American? What does it mean? Well, one thing that we notice is that people learn about key events in the nation's history. They celebrate victories. They celebrate heroes. They use symbols like the flag. They retell the stories of the nation that form their own identity. They read and rehearse and read again key texts. We've got a couple of Americans here with us today. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Here's another one. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Now, because of the media, we know a lot of these American texts and, and stories because of the film industry, but talking about the values of being American helped to form our friends, who we knew in that country, as Americans. It was their identity, part of who they were. I heard people... More than one person talk about their president as the leader of the free world. It's an interesting phrase. Now, of course, you transmit an identity by all of those things and by teaching children, teaching them history, teaching them to say things that actually they don't understand at first, like one nation that's indivisible. Now, it takes time to acquire an identity. Um, It takes time to understand an identity. It's not necessarily straightforward at first. Now, we are studying this extraordinary letter in the New Testament that's known as 1 Peter or 1 Peter. It's a circular letter. It was designed to be sent from town to town across a massive area that we know of as Turkey. Um, They called it Asia Minor. And at the beginning of the letter, Peter actually says he's writing to God's people in these areas. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, what we call Turkey, huge area. And we're learning that Peter is very concerned to get these Christians to rethink their identity. And not in conventional terms. Now he's breaking new ground here because Peter's writing to people who are citizens of the Roman Empire. And he says, in effect, you need to rethink your identity because your primary identity is not Roman, Galatian, Cappadocian, Asian, Bithynian, or Pontian. Your primary identity is Christian. You belong to Jesus Christ, and therefore you're actually exiles in this world. You've got dual citizenship. Now, it was crucial for these Christians to rethink their identity because they were under intense pressure. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. And he ends the letter, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. In other words, this letter is a resource for scattered Christian communities to stand firm under pressure. It's a guide to living splendidly 
in the furnace. Now, how do you live a splendid life in the furnace? Peter's going to give loads of practical advice and instructions in the next few chapters. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with a list of commands. He starts with a new identity. And he gives his readers this great vision, a sweeping, rich, quite complex vision of a new identity. And we've been thinking about it now for a few weeks. We've learned this. Christians are God's chosen people and they're exiles. We've learned that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit who sets them apart and makes them pure for obedience to Jesus and purifying by his blood. And the big image that Peter's been been going on about so far has been new birth. He says, you've been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus. Now the image of new birth is about as sweeping as you can get. Birth brings everything. With birth you get an inheritance, a share in God's future kingdom, Peter says, and that's an untouchable inheritance. And with this new birth you get new joy, and you also get new grief. He says, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials that have come. God knows about it, and he sent those trials into your life to refine your tested and genuine faith. And with the new birth comes a new way of life, a transformed way of life. Peter says, you've got to purify, you've purified yourself by obeying God's word. Now, love each other relentlessly. Get rid of all malice and deceit and envy and slander and hypocrisy. Now, so far, all of that relates to identity, but it's pretty much personal identity. In other words, so far, you could have read the letter and kind of got the impression that being a Christian is mainly about you as an individual and what you have to do and your new privileges and your new responsibilities. And that is true. But being a Christian is not simply personal and private. It's also corporate. And actually, Peter wants his readers to think of themselves not as isolated individuals, but as a unit, as a family, as a nation, as a kingdom. And he wants his readers to put their roots down deep into the soil of the Old Testament, or to change the analogy, for the sake of our engineers, to put down their, their concrete pylons deep into the foundations of the Old Testament, so that their identity is founded in the whole of God's word. Now, listen. What Peter's going to say next is not obvious to us. It's not simple. It may seem complex and alien. I talked to one person this week who said, I just don't understand this. Why do we have to talk about the Old Testament? It may be like a child learning to say indivisible when she hasn't got a clue what it means. But this is the way you acquire a new identity. By learning the key stories by celebrating the heroes, by reading the texts over and over, by transmitting the values. And Peter's going deep into the Old Testament. And so I want to spend two weeks on this corporate identity that we get that's full of Old Testament. We're going to take a bit of time to understand it. Now, just two things today. Are we echoing? I've got sort of storm clouds coming with this. Is it me? Don't know. It's gone now. Okay. Two things today. Peter says that Christians, corporately, are a spiritual house built of living stones and a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Let me say it again. A spiritual house, it's a temple image, and a holy priesthood. A temple and a priesthood. Two things. Now, what on earth does that mean? 
I want to tell you a story. It's a story about Talitha, the temple and the priest. Are you sitting comfortably? Once upon a time, there was a little girl called Talitha, and her name means little girl. She had black hair, olive skin, and dark sparkling eyes. She was small and lively and nimble. She lived in a fishing village on the shores of Lake Galilee with her family. She had two brothers and two sisters, and another brother had died in infancy. Her father and her grandfather are fishermen. Her mother runs the household. They don't have much money, but it's a happy family. And the highlight of the year is when they get to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem! Talitha looks forward to it all year long. At the time of our story, she's about seven or eight years old, and she's so excited about the trip to Jerusalem, she can't sleep the night before. The family travels along the way with a lot of other families, most of them on foot, so it's slow progress, and Talitha gets lots of time to play with her friends. There's a sort of carefree holiday atmosphere, and as they get nearer to Jerusalem, the adults start to sing songs like these. I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. Now those songs are in the book of Psalms. They're called the songs of ascent. And most scholars think that the worshippers would sing them as they went up to Jerusalem to attend the pilgrim festivals. They are words full of hope. And Tanitha's parents sing those songs too. And in the words, they see more than just a holiday tradition because they are faithful Israelites. They believe in the living God. They trust the great creator, the almighty. They know he's the redeemer of Israel, their people. And they're coming to Jerusalem primarily to meet God. Why else would a poor fishing family take two weeks off work to travel to Jerusalem, buy a lamb and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Passover. It's because of this. Unlike new labor, they do God. They take their God seriously, and they want to go to the temple. Now, this temple has got a very long history. At the Exodus, when God rescued his people around about 1500 BC, he rescued them from slavery, and he brought them out, and he became their king, and he gave them his guidance and teaching called the law in the wilderness. And he also gave instructions to Moses about how to build a tent, a special kind of tent called a tabernacle. It was a sacred and unique place. It was a tent of meeting because that's where God met with human beings. Now, many years later, when the people settled in the land, King David yearned to build a permanent structure to replace the tent, which was getting a bit careworn by that time. But God said it was not for David to do it because he was a warrior and he had bloodstained hands. He gave instructions to David for the design of the temple and the blueprints and what materials to use. But the job of building the temple was left to David's son, King Solomon, the great, greatest, perhaps, king of Israel. And he built this temple and it took years 
and it was known as Solomon's Temple. Now, when the building work was completed, the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant to the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, and they put it there. And when the priests withdrew from the holy place, a cloud filled the temple, and the priests couldn't perform their jobs because of this cloud, because the glory of God filled the temple. God actually manifested himself on earth at that spot. And Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Now that's what it was about. A place for God to dwell in the middle of his people. Now of course they knew that God is everywhere, creator of heaven and earth, and they knew that God can't be localized and contained, but God could also be specially present. And God wanted to live with them and be with them and be their people. Hit their God and then be his people. But they needed to be holy for a holy God. But as you know, the people sinned against God again and again and rejected his rule over centuries of painful spiritual adultery. And so in the year 586 BC, after a siege, the Babylonians crushed the nation. Jerusalem fell. They captured King Zedekiah and killed his sons in front of him. Then they put out his eyes put shackles on his wrists and took him to Babylon. Then the army broke down the walls. Then they broke up the bronze pillars of the temple and they took all the bronze, so much of it that it couldn't be weighed, and they carried it off to Babylon in the east. They took all the bowls and the censers made of pure gold and silver and then they razed the city to the ground. But all was not lost. The Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, has a different order to the Bible in your hands. The Hebrew Bible ends with the book of Chronicles. And Chronicles ends with these words. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's how the Bible ended for the Jews. Go back. Rebuild. Start again. And so the Jews went back, many of them, and they rebuilt the temple. Now, initially, it was a bit of a disappointment. In fact, a lot of people who saw it wept because they remembered how great Solomon's temple had been. It just wasn't as magnificent. But, centuries later, Herod the Great, who was a great builder as well as a psychopath, did some extension work, some remodeling and some renovation, and he massively expanded the temple and enhanced it and spent a fortune on it and spent decades building it out until once again it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was like the Taj Mahal. It was known as Herod's Temple or the Second Temple. And when Talitha and her family catch a glimpse of that temple, it never failed to take their breath away. The outward face was covered with plates of gold of great weight. And when the sun rose, it reflected back a kind of fiery splendor that was so intense you couldn't look at it. It was like staring at the sun. And at a distance, the parts of the temple that weren't covered with gold were, were really white and bright and brilliant, and it looked like mountains covered with snow. But you know what? The real beauty of that temple was not to do with what it was made of, but who lived there. Because if you wanted to engage with the living God, you had to go to the temple. 
How lovely is thy dwelling place, says the psalmist. How lovely is thy dwelling place. If you wanted to engage with God, you had to become a Jew. If you wanted to engage with God, you had to offer the right sacrifices. And now that's why Talitha and her mum and dad and brothers and sisters are going there, because they want not just a jolly, but to meet with God. And on this occasion, they're going to offer a sacrifice called the Passover. And the focus of this Passover is a lamb. Every family that was big enough to completely eat a lamb or a wild goat was required to offer one for sacrifice. And if the family was too small, they would get together with another group and make the offering and eat the lamb together. It had to be prepared in a certain way. It had to be roasted with its head, feet and inner organs intact and eaten with bread that had no yeast in it and eat it with bitter herbs. You had to be careful not to break any of the bones from the offering. None of the meat could be left over for mourning. And these conditions were all visual reminders of the escape from slavery. Now, because this Passover meal, this sacrifice, was sacred, not everybody could eat it. The following people could not eat or offer a lamb. An uncircumcised man, a non-Jew, a servant, person who was ritually unclean or someone who had renounced the faith. Why? Because this sacrifice is sacred and holy and special and those people were all impure in some way or other. Now when Talitha and her family arrive at the temple, they bring a lamb and an important person comes out to greet them. His name is Zechariah. He is a priest. Now what does being a priest involve? It's a bit like a cross between a butcher, a barbecue chef, and a minister. He had to receive, prepare, and present the offerings. He had to slaughter the animals and present the sacrifices. He mixed spices for burning incense. He kept a lookout for anything that was ritually unclean and cleaned it up. So he's a kind of cleaner as well. He and his colleagues handled the most sacred duties. He literally brought your family sacrifice to God. Now, who were these priests? It wasn't a career choice that was open to everyone. You had to be born into it. The priestly families were all from the tribe of Levi. They could be excluded from the job for inappropriate behavior. A bit like being a teacher. Being a priest was a holy task, a rare privilege. You were representing people to God. You worked for God full time. Privileged people. And so priests needed to be holy people. Now that's the end of my story. He's saying, that isn't a story. I know, I couldn't think of a story. I just had to think of a way of telling you all that stuff. Talitha, the temple and the priest. Now, bearing in mind that Peter says, if you're a Christian, your corporate identity is that you're a temple and a priest, are you starting to get a feeling for what it might have been like? What he's thinking of when he reaches back into his roots to talk about it. Let's read our text again. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says, if you have come to Jesus... If you've trusted him, if you're a Christian, then now you are being built on him, the living stone. And you're being built together into a spiritual 
house. It's an image of a temple. That means, just like God specially lived in the temple, now he specially lives in each Christian believer and each Christian community. That means that together, we are the place where God dwells. You see how big this is? That means that if people want to know God and engage with God, they don't have to go to a stone building now. They come to the living church of Jesus Christ. This is how people engage with God. By coming to our church meetings and our community groups and seeing God at work in ordinary people. This means that mission is a priority because as Christians go into all the world and tell other people about Jesus and those people turn their lives over to him, the earth is filled with the presence of God. That means mission is a priority, especially the places where Jesus is not known and not named. 90% of missionaries go to places that are already reached. This means that our lives are closely bound up relying on the life of Jesus. We're living stones, he says, built on the living stone. We depend on him to the uttermost, and we depend on him for our future. We build our lives on Jesus, and without him we have no foundation. But with him we have everything. So, how close are you to Jesus today? How closely have you walked with Jesus in the last week? And this image, living stones being built together, spiritual house, says something profound about our relationship to other believers. The living stones are not lying around, sort of scattered around on a, in a field or tossed into a skip or heaped up in a pile. Every one of these stones plays a part. They're not just lying around on a building site. Every one of us, that means, is part of a spiritual house in which God dwells. So the lives of Christians are built not just on Jesus, but on one another. We're built on each other. If it's a house. So let me ask, if you're a Christian here today, and I know not everyone is, some, some people are inquiring, how, if you're a Christian, how would you describe your relationship to the local church? I don't just mean your relationship to a few Christian mates, but to an organized body of God's people. How would you describe your relationship to it? If that church was a building and you were one of the bricks, how strong would that wall be? Are you absolutely dependable, trustworthy, reliable, and loyal to the project? Are you in? Or would a surveyor find that the wall was weak at the point where you were in the wall? Would he actually find there was a missing brick? Would it need underpinning and there'd be some cracks on the inside? Being a living stone means having the right kind of attitude, quality of relationship to other people. Being a living stone means, obviously, serving, reliable, committed service. Being a living stone means having spiritual input into each other's lives so that we speak truth to one another. We don't let things go. We don't tolerate discord and rivalry and jealousy and let me just ask, what kind of brick are you? Now, when I was 15, I used to live, listen to an album by Pink Floyd called The Wall. I used to listen to it four times a day. And there was a great song 
all in all, you're just another brick in the wall. And I have to say, that is not a good image for this particular talk, because being a brick in the wall was very negative in the Pink Floyd song. Let me give you another image from the ancient world. The king of Sparta, whose walls were famous for being so strong, showed a guest around the city, and the guest couldn't see the walls. So he comes to the end of the city, he says, I'm a bit curious, where are these famous walls of yours? And the king said, see my army? Those are my walls. Every man is a brick. Sounds a bit 1950s public school. You're a real brick. Let me speak to Grace Church members here. Are you a brick? Can people rely on you? Are you building your life into the lives of other people? Are you supportive of them? Or are you deliberately at arm's length? Do you weaken the structure or build it up? If we're being built into a spiritual house, what's your contribution? Some of you guys here are going out to start a new church, City Church Manchester, this summer. What an exciting thing that is. Will you be built together as living stones, building a spiritual house? You're going to have to rely on each other to make that work count under God. Newcomers, people who are looking around, great to have you with us. By all means, look at different churches, but wherever you settle, get involved, get involved well. Be a living stone. Now, the challenging thing I find about this image that Peter uses here of being a spiritual house is it means that my identity as Christian is not complete without you. If I'm not unified with you and I'm not building my life into yours, then my Christian identity is incomplete. I'm just a brick left on the building site. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others. Peter's thinking big. He's thinking big time. He's thinking... He says, you're part of a grand community that's building a temple, the Church of Jesus Christ. And when the scaffolding of time is taken down, we will see a beautiful thing, the kingdom of God in all its fullness. So belonging to the, the people of God is the greatest privilege on earth. Now, moving quickly on to our final point, Peter says, you're not just the temple, you're also the priests. Let's read our text again. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. This means now that everything that was true of the priests in the Old Testament is now true of every Christian. Right? Everything that was true of the priests is now true of you. You are now the holy priesthood. That means you're called to be holy. You're called to serve God all the time, to bring other people to God, and to make sacrifices. And you're thinking, what kind of sacrifices are we going to make? I haven't seen too many lambs being brought into Manchester Academy, or even so much as a pigeon. What kind of sacrifices do we make that are spiritual? Well, the Bible uses this word in a few different places. Turn back, if you've got the church Bible, to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. That's page 1212. Page 1212, Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God as sacrifice 
of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. First sacrifice we bring to God is the sacrifice of praise. I think there used to be a song about this. We bring a sacrifice of praise. Anyone remember that one? Two people remembered it. Wow, that really dates me. What is a sacrifice of praise? Is it everyone has to learn an acoustic guitar? You know, practice for praise. You praise things that you love. You praise things that you admire. You praise things that you value. Who was it that sang, I want to celebrate you, baby. I want to praise you like I should. Is it Fatboy Slim? Yes. I want to celebrate you, baby. I want to praise you like I should. That's a sacrifice of praise to his lover. And this says that our sacrifice of praise is we praise God with our lips. We talk about him appreciatively, admiringly. We talk about him as if he's valuable to us. We speak of him in praise and we sing. Second sacrifice is we do good. It's in the very next verse, 16. Oops, I've lost my place again. Page 12, 12. Do not forget to do good and to share with others. This is the kind of thing you say to kids all the time. Do not forget to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Doing good to other people, sharing your stuff, is a sacrifice to God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. This is page 1176. Page 1176. Ephesians 5 verse 2. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Living a life of love, it turns out, is a sacrifice to God. Loving other people. Forward a few pages. Philippians 4 verse 18. Philippians 4 verse 18. I have received full payment and I have more than enough. He's talking about money. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Your, your gifts, your financial gifts to gospel work are a sacrifice, aren't they? Don't you feel that? Your money goes out, your bank account at the start of the month, going off to stewardship something else like that, and you think, well, how are we going to make ends meet? That is a sacrifice. Your non-Christian friends don't do it. You feel the pinch, but God loves it. It's fragrant. He smells your money, and it smells good. And fifthly, and maybe most challenging of all, Romans 12, verse 1, page 1139, a fifth sacrifice of the New Testament. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That means total commitment to God in everything we do. There's the acceptable sacrifices of the New Testament people. So let me ask you, if you are a holy priest and you're on duty... Would you be disqualified for living inappropriately? Does your lifestyle match up to your holy identity? 
if you are bringing these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, to God, what is the quality of your sacrifices? In the Old Testament, you could bring what you had. If you were poor, you could bring like a pigeon or a dove to sacrifice. If you had a bit more money, you might spring for a goat or a lamb. Really rich people could bring a bull. But you know what? If you can afford a bull and you bring a pigeon, it's not so good. Now, what is the motive for living like this? Living as a spiritual house, living as a, a holy priest. Going back to our opening illustration, my American friends did not see their identity as Americans as a burden or a chore. It was just part of who they were. They knew their history and they knew the stories and they celebrated the fact that their story was a story built on opportunity, on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They knew that their story, was, their identity was bound up with freedom. And I admired their confidence. But they were wrong about one thing. When they said that Barack Obama was the leader of the free world, they were making a grave mistake. No disrespect to President Obama. There's only one leader of the free world. His name is Jesus Christ. He leads the only world that's free. And that's where Peter roots our corporate identity. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, you're being built together. As you come to him, we receive our identity by coming to him. All of our sacrifice and commitment and becoming living stones are built on faith in Jesus, that we have come to him, the living stones. It's not about you working up some credit and trying really hard. It's about you trusting Jesus, resting in him, putting your life on him. He was rejected by men, but precious to God. He was rejected by his hometown. Jesus went back to the place he'd grown up and he was rejected. He said a prophet's without honour in his own country. He was rejected for a time by his own family. His mother and his brothers came to where he was teaching and said he's out of his mind. He was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. They plotted to kill him. They opposed him in public. They hounded and persecuted him. He was rejected then by the Roman government. Herod, Pilate, washed their hands of Jesus Christ. He was rejected by his own people, the Israelite people. He was rejected by Judas Iscariot, one of his 12 closest followers, the, the treasurer, the guy who looked after the money, the one who looked so trustworthy, rejected Jesus. He was disclaimed by Peter, the foundational member of the church. He was rejected by his own father on the cross. Jesus Christ was rejected by human beings, but he was precious to God. So let me close by asking, is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? As you think about the people in your life who are precious to you, is Jesus among that list? Because if he is, he will give you all the resources needed to be a living stone, to be a holy priest, offering sacrifices acceptable to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we live our lives from day to day. We get caught up in the things of this, this life and this world and the cares that surround us. We are surrounded by media and we, 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 most of us live with a computer in our pocket. 
We check it constantly, finding information and messages. Help us to listen to your voice in the scriptures. Help us to receive our identity from you and from Jesus, our Lord, not from anything else. Help us to build our lives upon him, the living stone, and thank you for him, for his great love and mercy shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.